God, again, I just praise you for who you are. I praise you that, that you would give us your presence. Even though we are sinners and we have turned our back on you, God, you have made a way for us to come back to you. You've made a way to reconcile that relationship. So this morning, God, as we dig into your word, I pray that you will uh, teach us something new or remind us of something that we may have forgotten. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we are continuing our sermon series into the post-exilic books. Uh, these are the books that were written uh, when the uh, Jews returned from exile. Um, the sermon series title is Depending on God, because as we see these uh, Jews, they're rebuilding their culture, they're rebuilding the, the temple. Along the way, throughout this entire process, they have to keep being reminded to depend on God. Um, we'll see that lesson played out over six different books, and that's uh, Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Um, and that, like I said, it's six different books, and they, they all kind of are pointing to the same reality, but they are six, not just different books, but very different in the way that they're uh, written and the content within them. Um, and so we are, well, it says Ezra, the beginning of the return, and we are still kind of under the Ezra timeline part, but this morning we're going to be in Haggai chapter 2, um, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9, and this is, uh, the title of this sermon is God's Glorious Presence. Uh, and the main idea here is that the greatest glory is God's presence. Uh, the greatest glory is God's presence. And uh, we'll see that kind of played out in three different small chapters this morning. That's, uh, this, uh, there's a small new temple, uh, and God tells them to be strong, and then uh, God's treasure um, so we'll go ahead and get right into, um, the, well, before we get into the text, you know, so far in this series, we've seen King Cyrus of Persia issue a decree that allowed the Jews to return from Babylon to go back to their homeland. And he gave them permission and funds to rebuild the temple. Uh, then as they were beginning to rebuild, they started with the altar. And as soon as the altar was completed, they started offering sacrifices. But unfortunately, after that, some problems arose from the neighboring peoples, and they opposed the Jews and caused them to stop building. Uh, this cease lasted for 15 years until God spoke to them through the prophet Haggai to convince them to, can you, to continue building. Um, and that was last week's sermon. Haggai stepped up and, and spoke God's words to them. Um, so this morning we are picking up right after that uh, in verse, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the remnant of the people who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory. How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing by comparison? So this starts with a little uh, timestamp for us. Again, I, I've told you guys I really appreciate these timestamps. It help us, helps us to put together the timeline of these events. Uh, last week, and we said we, we, uh, we had a look at God's word to the Jews that over the past 15 years they were supposed to be building the temple and they stopped and since they weren't doing what God told them to do, God disciplined them. He said, you work and work and work and you have nothing to show for it. You go out in the fields and, and you're, you're trying to be good farmers and your, your, uh, your crop is just not as abundant as you think it should be or you can eat and eat and eat and you're still hungry and, or you, you drink and you can never quench that thirst. God says, there's a reason for that. It's because I sent you back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and you're not doing that. So since you're not being obedient, here's the discipline. And uh, so Haggai steps in and tells them that that's God's discipline, um, and that uh, they needed to get back to work. 
And then in Haggai chapter 1, verse 14, for some of you it might be on the same page in your Bible or just the previous page, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So that was the 24th day of the sixth month is where we left off. But now we're picking up in this verse the 21st day of the seventh month. It's only a month later. And Haggai addresses them again. And he addresses three groups, well, three people. It's a, uh, he addresses Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people. So we've already mentioned earlier, uh, and we hear a lot about Zerubbabel and Joshua in this series, or at least the first part of it, in the first probably six or seven months. We'll hear a lot about uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Um, Zerubbabel is the governor, and Joshua is the high priest. The remnant of the people, those are all the people who return from Babylon with them. So Zerubbabel, uh, sorry, Zerubbabel, stands for the political leadership, and Joshua stands for the religious leadership, and the remnant is basically anybody else who's there. Uh, so God is telling Haggai that this message is for everyone. It's not just for the government. It's not just for the, the priests. It's, it's not just for the regular people, the, the, le- the, the laity. It's for everyone. So the message here that God starts with, he starts with a question. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So we talked about this, week, this, this point a couple weeks ago, uh, but just for review, I want to go back and read it. Uh, back in Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, it says, When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, let me skip a little bit there, it says, Many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. So before the Jews stopped building for fear of their enemies, they had finished the foundation of the new temple. But as soon as they finished the foundation, some of the folks who remembered the original temple started sobbing and crying out in protest because the new temple was going to be much smaller than the old temple. So the, the original temple, Solomon's temple, it was big and it was beautiful. It measured 90 feet long and 30 feet wide and 45 feet high and it was beautifully decorated. There was hand-carved stone and, and there was a, a lot of it was overlaid with gold and it was just beautiful. King Solomon reigned, or it took them seven years to build that temple under Solomon's leadership. But see, King Solomon reigned during Israel's most prolific era. The kingdom was bigger and richer than it had ever been in uh, Israel's past and bigger than it has been since. It still hasn't reached that size. It just makes sense that the temple would be so large and beautiful. They had the money, they had the means, and there was a lack of distraction because it was one of the most peaceful times in that region of the world. But now, it's a month after they've started rebuilding or this rebuilding project, And it has once again become clear that this temple is going to be much smaller based on its original foundation. Uh, The people who saw the old temple, they saw the foundation of the new one, and they were heartbroken. Thankfully, they weren't the only people there. We also read that there were many people who praised God. The sound of praise and weeping were indistinguishable because there were so many on both sides. Um, And God, through Haggai, has a message for those people who are upset over the size of the foundation. So we keep reading, uh, picking up in verse 4. It says, Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. So God tells them, be strong. Tells all three groups, be strong. We read that three times in this passage, be strong. 
So these three recipients that God told Haggai to give this message to, they're now getting to see the message, or we now get to see this message that God has for them. And I want to say it again. Be strong. This command is similar to what God commanded Joshua at the end of their wandering through the wilderness right before entering the promised land. So back in Joshua uh, chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Be strong and courageous, for you will dis- uh, distribute the land that I swore to their fathers to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction my, my servant Moses commanded you. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. See, the Israelites were afraid to enter the promised land because of the people who were already there. But God told Joshua to be strong. But it was more than just a commandment to be strong. It was paired with a promise. Look in verse 9. God God not only told Joshua to be strong, He gave him the greatest source of strength anyone could ever ask for. God's presence. It says, be strong. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, that's another similarity to this passage back in Haggai. God says, for I am with you. He tells them, be strong. He tells Zerubbabel, be strong. He tells Joshua, be strong. He tells the remnant of the people to be strong, for I am with you. See, God promises his presence. He tells the Jews to be strong because he is with them. Their strength does not come from the size or the beauty of the temple or the greatness of any of their buildings. Their strength comes from God. God's presence brings strength that only, or that, that, uh, sorry, God's presence brings strength that they could not build or manufacture on their own. His presence brings a strength that is more than even Solomon's temple could provide. I think that's why God made this passage so similar to his command to Joshua after wandering in the wilderness. God told Joshua to be strong. And that was before the temple was built. They used a tabernacle instead. So it was like a a big tent that they would set up uh, when they were traveling. They would set up this big tent, and that would serve as the temple area. Um, And then as they they moved to a different part of the wilderness, they would tear down the tent, move somewhere else, and set it up again. And so there wasn't a temple, and there wasn't this big, mighty fortress, uh, that uh, show of strength. But God told Joshua, be strong. Your strength comes from God's presence, not from any of these buildings that you have. See, now God is calling on these Jews to trust in Him and to draw strength from His presence, just like Joshua did, so they could reestablish the land that was conquered. You see, God's presence is truly a beautiful thing. And, not, and it's something that we were created to have. No, we weren't just created to have it. We were created for it. That was the purpose of our creation. But see, unfortunately, none of us deserve God's presence. We've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, we must be driven out of his presence, like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But we, uh, that's why we see so much brokenness and hurt in our society and in our world and in our own lives. But God loves us so much that He did not want us to stay in that state. He did not want us to have a life without access to Him. So He sent His Son Jesus to die for our sins, taking our guilt and giving us His righteousness. His sacrifice on the cross makes a way for us to be restored back to God's presence. He was resurrected on the third day to prove that He was God and that His sacrifice was not in vain. So if you place your faith and your trust in Him and in His sacrifice, and accept Him as Lord, then you can have God's presence too. 
But see, God's comfort for the Jews was not just uh, God, God's comfort and gift was his presence. But these Jews are not merely supposed to just bask in God's presence. They're not merely to just rest in his presence. He commands them, work. He says, my presence is there with you. Be strong. My presence is there with you. But, but don't be lazy. Work. Yes, Sabbath and rest, it's important for us. It's important for our souls and it's important for our walk with God. It's important for our health. But too much rest is not good. Too much rest is just, well, that's laziness. So God has given these Jews a job to do, and they're to rebuild the temple. They can work confidently knowing that God is there with them. In the same way, we must remember that God has given each of us a job to do, our own personal ministry. To go along with that, God has given us as a church a job to do as well. Yes, we should be coming together to worship, to grow, and to learn. We should be coming together to rest and to Sabbath in God. But that's not, what, that's not all that church is about. It's about coming together to do God's work. God has called us to make disciples individually and as a group. I know I talked about this last week, but the call to make disciples was Jesus' final words to his disciples. And one of the focuses of our vision, worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is God's presence that gives us the strength to work toward that vision. Let's keep reading. It says, For the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place, the declaration of the Lord of armies. So God says that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. See, this prophecy, I think, has a twofold fulfillment. First, we can think of the, the New Testament era. And see, the Roman Empire was the largest empire that history had seen yet, and it was brimming with all sorts of different people groups. In that time, King Herod's building projects included the expansion of the temple, where it rivaled Solomon's temple. When King Herod was done, the, the temple during Jesus' era, during Jesus' time on earth, was comparable to Solomon's temple. But I don't really think that's the main fulfillment that Haggai is referring to here. Well, before we get to that, I want to talk about something I haven't talked about in a little while here. Um, it's a phenomenon that we have to keep in mind when we're reading Old Testament prophecy or even New Testament prophecy. It's called uh, prophetic telescoping. Right, this is the pr uh, principle that says when a prophet gets a vision from God and he's looking into the future, sometimes he has a single vision that has a couple different fulfillments that might be separated by hundreds of years or even thousands of years. You could think of it kind of like this. Um, and and um, this was explained to me when I was a student at uh, Liberty University, um, and it fit well. You know, Liberty's in the, the mountains of Virginia. Um, so you can think of it like this. When you're going on a road trip, and you see the mountains off in the distance. You don't see you know, individual mountains as you're looking. You see this big group of mountains. And from a distance, it almost looks like one big single object. But then as you get closer, you realize that it's not just one big single object. There are several different mountains, and they're separated by lots and lots of space, lots of many miles in between them. But you know, when you're looking off in the distance, if you have one mountain behind another one, it could almost look like the same mountain. 
But then you get up closer and you get between them and you see, oh wow, that mountain's way over there and that mountain's way over there. And so when we're looking at Old Testament prophecy, the same thing happens when it comes to fulfillment, sometimes. You have, they have these twofold fulfillments where you know, the, the prophet is looking into the future and he sees what might look like one event to him, but then when we're looking at it, now in our, our time frame, we're at a, in a different point in history, so we have a different perspective. And so we might see, okay, well, there is a partial fulfillment here, and there's going to be another fulfillment in the future. I think that's what's happening here. God says, I will shake the nations so that, all the treasures of all, uh, so that the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. I think there's a partial fulfillment with that in the New Testament era, during Jesus' time on earth. But the greatest fulfillment of that comes um, later, um, we'll actually see it when we study Zechariah, um, who prophesies about the end of time, when God fully defeats his armies and fully reestablishes his kingdom on earth. But we also read about it in Revelation chapter 20, when God brings a new Jerusalem down from heaven, one where there's not even a need for a temple because Jesus himself is the temple. And at that time, all nations will worship Jesus as Lord and he will reign perfectly forever. See, the glory of God's presence is greater than the most glorious building that could ever be built by human hands. So when God says, I will fill this house with glory, he's literally saying that I will be the temple and my glory will be what lights the earth. I will fill this house with glory because God's presence is more glorious than any building that you could ever build or even imagine. See, we know that Jesus is going to return, and all those who have placed their faith in his life, death, and resurrection for their redemption will be with him in eternity, and will join him in his kingdom. We will be there for all of eternity in perfect relationship with him, like we are created to be. This is available for all humanity if you will confess your sin, recognize your need for a Savior, and call out to him for salvation. He will restore you to a perfect relationship with God, your Creator and Heavenly Father, but not just for now, not just for your life here, but for all eternity. And see, then God says, the silver and, God, the silver and gold belong to me. I had uh, referenced this earlier when we were getting ready to uh, take up our tithes. Um, see, since all the silver and gold are His, He's telling the Jews not to worry about any lack of funds that they may see. You see, God has already provided for them by a proclamation through King Cyrus at the beginning of the building project. Cyrus commanded that all the peoples around the Jews should give them gifts to fund the building project, and not just monetary gifts, but should give them the materials to uh, rebuild the temple as well. But God says he's not just limited to that, but all the riches in the world rightfully belong to him, and he will bring them to his temple. That reminds me, of a quote from Mark Clifton. Now, Mark Clifton is the the senior director of replanting with the North American Mission Board. And this quote, I heard him say, it's probably a year and a half ago now, but it has stuck with me. Um, He says, God is under no obligation to resource your plans for his church, but he will spare no resource in heaven to resource his plans for the church. I'm going to say that again because that's big. God is under no obligation to resource your plans for his church, but he will spare no resource in heaven to resource his plans for his church. See, for us here at Victory, that means that our budget is in God's hands if we are making sure that we are following his plans. See, over the past few years, our budget has grown, but compared to many other churches, our budget would seem minuscule. 
but I don't really care about that. I just want to make sure that we are following God's plans for this church. Because if we're following His plans, it doesn't matter what our budget looks like because He's going to make sure that He funds what He wants to do with this church. We, we can sit here and worry and stress about the money, and we do want to make sure that we're being good stewards about it. But God says, if you're doing what I want you to do, I want to make sure you have the funds to do it. Now I pray, or sorry, God tells the Jews that the final glory of the house will be greater than the first. But that's not because of the gold or the silver or the grandeur of the building. It's because he will dwell there for eternity. Now I pray that people will say the same thing, victory. That we will be known for the presence of God. That this is a place where God's glory is highlighted through God's mission because of God's presence. Now finally, the last thing uh, the, the last thing God's promises, the last thing God promises the Jews in this prophecy is peace. He says, I will provide peace in that place. And see, the biblical understanding of peace is not merely the absence of conflict. It does include that, but it also involves a completeness or a fulfillment of purpose. True peace is much more than just not fighting. It's the ability to collaborate, to overlook differences, to be productive in relationship. See, God is the only source of true peace. In this passage, he promises peace for the Jews. Now, that hasn't happened yet. But remember, this prophecy looks into the future, into the end times, through the New Testament era, through our time, and into the time when Jesus returns. In that time, God will provide peace for all who believe in him. Through the gospel, though, we can start to exemplify some of that peace in our lives. Being people of the gospel, we should be known as people of peace. That doesn't mean we're all going to be exactly the same, though. But that does mean that we can use our differences as an advantage to be more productive. And see, next weekend, uh, the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs are going to play in some game. No, I'm just kidding. It's a big game. I'm, I'm really excited about it. They're going to play in the Super Bowl. I wish Green Bay was going to be there, but they're not. Uh, but anyway, those two teams are made up of a bunch of different people. See, Jimmy Garoppolo... He has a very specific skill set that makes him a really good quarterback, but he shouldn't be playing tight end. They've got somebody else for that. That position requires a totally different skill set. And uh, George Kittle is a great fit for that. He's a great tight end, but he does not have the skill set to be a defensive back. They've got Richard Sherman for that. He's got that skill set, and he's, a really, he's really great in that position. But those three guys are great at what they do, but they're probably not the guys that you want making business decisions for the 49ers. They've got John Lynch to do, to do that. See, it takes a lot of different people and a lot of different skills to make a successful football team. In the same way, it takes a lot of different people with a lot of different skill sets to successfully meet the vision that God has given us here at this church. A lot of different people with different skills and different personalities working together to make disciples. So, what application do we get from this passage? Our application always comes from our definition of a disciple and our three indicators of a disciple, the knowing, being, and doing. First is to know that God's presence provides power and peace. True strength is a byproduct of God's presence. In the wilderness, God told Joshua, Be strong, for I am with you. In this passage, God tells the Jews, Be strong, and I am with you. In our church, the power to stand up to spiritual warfare and to carry on the work of the gospel comes from God's presence. Real peace only comes from God's presence. God's, uh, God promises peace when he returns. 
but we don't have to wait for that. Jesus gives us peace and the ability to carry that peace into our relationships. But most importantly, Jesus gives us peace with God. The second application point is to be restored to God's presence. We were created to be in God's presence, but because of our sin, we're separated from him. We're thrown out of the garden like Adam and Eve. We have chosen enmity with God when we choose to sin. But Jesus came to restore us. Through his perfect life and his perfect sacrifice, we can be restored to God's presence and God's favor. His presence is the greatest present we could ever imagine. So place your faith in Jesus and be restored today. And finally, the do is to work. Now there's an exclamation point here, but that's not here out of frustration or anger on my part. Back in verse 4, when God is telling the Jews to work, there's an exclamation point there to indicate urgency. And that same urgency carries to us. Work together to make disciples. That doesn't mean we're all doing the same thing, but we as a body are all doing different things working toward the same goal. Our goal and our vision is worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through working together for the mission of God, we demonstrate the peace that God gives to us, and that will be perfectly instituted when he returns. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we just praise you for who you are. We praise you that, that you would forgive us and come and, and give us your presence. God, we thank you that you are a God who loves and a God who has uh, made a way to restore the relationship that we broke. Father, I ask that you will help us to know that your presence provides power and peace. Help us, God, to be restored to your presence. And uh, Lord, help us to work together for your uh, glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we've come to our point of response, and you can respond right where you're seated, or you can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.